Let us pray together as we prepare to hear the word of God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would now send us your Holy Spirit to understand and write the word that is about to be read and proclaimed. And Lord, prepare our hearts to receive that word. May it find fertile soil to grow and to produce fruit in our lives. That we might live as citizens of your kingdom to the praise of your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning is from Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord, it is written. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields and those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest and he entered Jerusalem And went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those of you who are familiar with the ordinary church calendar... As Pastor John has already indicated, are hearing this text and know that this passage has been traditionally assigned to Palm Sunday, the Sunday that we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in the days preceding his crucifixion. And as Pastor John has already mentioned, today is not Palm Sunday. We are not at the end of this season of Lent, but at its beginning. So before we get into the text this morning, uh, I want to reiterate some of what Mr. John already said. I want to give two primary reasons why we are looking at this passage for Palm Sunday today. First, the tradition is to preach this passage or one of the parallel passages and one of the other Gospels, the Sunday before Easter, because it marks, as Pastor John has said, the beginning of what the church calls Holy Week. It's the beginning of the passion narrative, passion meaning to suffer. It's the week 
that the conflict between Jesus and his opponents reaches its boiling point, which leads to his arrest, his trial, his torture, and his crucifixion. But here is the problem with celebrating Palm Sunday on the Sunday before Easter. For most folks who are unable to attend Holy Week services, the movement, at least in terms of corporate worship, is from Jesus' entry into Jerusalem right to celebrating his resurrection on Easter morning. So do you see the problem? We get to the resurrection completely bypassing the suffering and death of Jesus. We never deal with that moment that the Apostle John tells us defines what love is. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. God is love, John tells us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. In other words, do you want to know God's love? Then look at the cross. We know the love of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, that while we were yet enemies Jesus died for us. He came as a sin sacrifice for us. Upon the cross, he offered himself up in our place and board the penalty of our sins. If we miss this, we miss what is at the heart of Christianity. We end up with a Christianity that does not take sin very seriously. We end up with a Christianity that is all about love, but has no sense of God's justice and righteousness, which means it really doesn't understand God's love at all, but has replaced it with a sentimentality. We end up with a Christianity that is devoid of discipleship, that has no understanding that following Jesus is about following the way of the cross, appenting of those aspects of our lives that are not of God, and allowing them to be nailed to the cross with Jesus, putting them to death by the power of the Spirit. And with no thought on the seriousness of our sin, the substitutionary wrath-appeasing sacrifice of Jesus, the call to come and die with him, we end up with a hollowed-out religion. We end up worshiping a God who is not the triune God of grace, but a God who exists to meet our every want and whim. So we made a pastoral decision to spend significant time, the entire season of Lent in worship and Sunday school, and hopefully for all of us every day in between, focusing on Jesus' time in Jerusalem. We don't want to rush over this final week in a week. We want to dwell here for a while, focusing on Jesus' suffering and death. But the other reason for this is that as John mentioned a full one-third of Mark's gospel is spent on Jesus' time in Jerusalem. Mark's gospel has been known as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. In other words, all of Mark's gospel is really leading up to and pointing to these final chapters starting in chapter 11. Mark spends a lot of time and attention here because 
the events of this week are significant, and we should take note of this and do likewise. And it is an appropriate thing for the season of Lent. For how are we to truly celebrate the resurrection on Easter morning unless we have spent time meditating on the suffering and death of Jesus? How are we to think about the forgiveness of sins and the great price that this forgiveness comes with unless we have thought deeply about how our sins, our sins, put Jesus on that cross and were dealt with therein? We will not know the springtime green of new life on Easter morning and rejoice in it unless we have known the pitch black darkness of death that necessitated it and have mourned over it. And so this is the first Sunday of Lent and we begin our Lenten journey to the cross with Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. Now there are many layers to Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem But we should see here at the outset that this passage is at its core about Jesus as king. Coming to accomplish that for which he was sent and that for which will lead to his exaltation and enthronement as the conquering king of kings, lord of lords. Therefore, the questions for us this morning are very simple. First, what is the character of his kingship? What is the character of his kingship? And second, what does his kingship mean for us? So first, what is the character of his kingship? What type of king is Jesus? Let's just be upfront about it. He is a lowly king. He's a lowly king. This is the picture that we have in this account of Jesus's life. Even though there seems to be all of this pomp and circumstance in this passage, perhaps a momentary glimpse in which those around Jesus might actually be coming close to giving him the honor he is due, it should not be lost on us the focus of the text. Mark wants us to see clearly who Jesus is, even if those around him that day do not. You see, there is a lot of ambiguity here. For instance, this chanting of Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It might seem to be a very clear pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, but Psalm 118 is one of those psalms commonly used in the procession into Jerusalem by pilgrims coming to celebrate Passover. That's what's happening here. Jesus and his followers are entering into Jerusalem during the Passover festivities. Again, this passage has many, many layers Because although this is a psalm typically used by pilgrims, we understand that Jesus is not a typical pilgrim. The psalm, which is calling upon the Lord for salvation, declares, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This whole Psalm takes on a whole new meaning with Jesus. It's being lived out, fulfilled before their eyes. And the disciples will certainly later realize this, but it is unclear if the crowd that day gets it. For sure, though, Jesus does not enter into Jerusalem in the customary manner as a pilgrim. Pilgrims walk into Jerusalem. 
Jesus comes riding on the colt of a donkey, which is, again, clearly from our point of view, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, which states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah prophesied a Davidic king who would reign with gentleness and usher in a time of peace and prosperity. It isn't only that Jesus is coming riding on a donkey. It's a donkey which has been commandeered, which is the prerogative of a king in ancient times. But it's also a donkey that has never been written, as Mark points out, which would have made the animal sacred. Also, by the way, making the animal appropriate for a king because no one may ride a king's animal. But all of these are just subtle details in the moment. But surely the people are looking for a king, someone to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy, which had been made years before during a time when the Jews longed for their independence and their own king. This longing had only grown over the years, and so it's important to consider the history of Israel. The Jews at this point had been years and years without living in peace with true independence and with a king of their own. Remember, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in about 22. The southern kingdom of Judah held out a little longer, but eventually fell to the Babylonians around 586. And then the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians around 538 or 39. It was during this time that Zechariah is writing. The Persians would be defeated by Alexander the Great around 330. And then Israel would be divided up after Alexander's death a few years later, eventually to be conquered by the Roman Empire in 63. And this Roman rule remained through the time of Jesus. So with the exception of a very brief period before the Romans conquered Israel, it had been hundreds of years since Israel had had a sovereign, had been a sovereign nation ruled by its own king. People were anxiously awaiting the day when this prophecy of Zechariah would be fulfilled. And now, all of a sudden, we have this man who's been recognized as one who has authority, who's been traveling around teaching and performing miracles, declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand and who is now on a donkey colt riding into Jerusalem. And so we can sense this excitement in the passage. Garments are being laid on the road before Jesus, which was a royal salute. Same thing happening with Jehu in 2 Kings 9 when he is anointed as king. So there seems to be some sort of recognition of who Jesus is or what he might be pointing to. But we can also see hints of misunderstanding or just missing the point altogether. Mark records the crowd saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is not from Psalm 118. It perhaps reveals a belief that the coming king would restore the kingdom of Israel. And so it very well could be that some in that crowd, or 
Most in that crowd were thinking that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem preparing to go to war with Israel's Roman oppressors. It was, after all, the Passover, a time in which Israel was remembering that God had delivered them out of the oppression of the Egyptians. And they're waving branches Other gospel writers tell us these are palm branches, which were commonly waved during these festivals, but they were also the symbol of the Maccabean revolt, which was the last revolt that overthrew Israel's oppressors before a brief, for a brief time before the current Roman occupation. Again, there are many, many here and a great deal of ambiguity, but here's the point. The fact is, is that Jesus didn't come proclaiming the kingdom of Israel was at hand. He came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. His kingdom is not of this world, but is here to change it. He didn't come riding into Jerusalem on a war stallion. Mark's audience who were in Rome, would have recognized this. They were probably very familiar with the way in which Roman conquerors came riding into a defeated city or returning home to Rome victorious. But for the original audience witnessing and participating in this event, it could have seemed anything from somewhat of a normal pilgrim's procession into Jerusalem during the Passover to the Davidic king coming to make war. We have the privilege of knowing what is to come. And so we can see it for what it is. We understand that Jesus riding on a donkey speaks volumes about who he is. He's riding on a lowly beast of burden. An animal that is a symbol of peace, not war. It is a humble entrance into Jerusalem that Jesus makes. Also know that this picture of Jesus as a humble king will find its bookend in the chapters to come where Jesus is crowned and enthroned just not in the way that any would have expected who were with him that day. There is no bejeweled crown awaiting him but a crown made out of thorns. There is no throne in a palace but only an instrument of death on which will hang a sign, king of the Jews. He is a king rejected by his own people. Mark wants us to see Jesus here as the lowly king who has come to save and will come to his throne by way of humility and suffering. It is not the pomp and circumstance of the crowds on that Palm Sunday that will define his kingship. It is the cross. But as we ask what type of king Jesus is, we do not want to misunderstand his meekness and his mildness. He comes riding on a donkey, signaling that he is a king of a peaceable kingdom, and yet, and yet, his entrance into Jerusalem is an act of war. Many, including Sinclair Ferguson, who we've been reading, have compared Jesus entering Jerusalem with Julius Caesar crossing the river Rubicon. 
If you know Roman history, you know that this was the event that precipitated the Roman Civil War that would end with Julius Caesar being Caesar, emperor of Rome. You see, at the end of his governorship of a nearby Roman province, Julius Caesar was instructed by the Roman Senate to disband his army and return to Rome. Instead, he broke Roman law by entering into Italy in command of his army. It was a capital offense. It was treasonous. And as he marched his army across the shallow waters of the Rubicon River into Italy, it is said that he uttered the words, the die is cast. It was a point of no return. He was intentionally declaring war on the Roman Senate and forcing them to act. Entering into Jerusalem was a point of no return for Jesus. There is a battle to be fought here. It just isn't the battle that many who were following him were anticipating. They were gearing up for what they believed would be the overthrow of the Roman oppressors. This was not the battle that Jesus was coming to fight, though. It is not a coincidence, I believe, that later in the week the crowd will demand that Jesus is crucified and Barabbas is released. Think about it. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He had led a revolt against the Romans. Jesus was a disappointment. He did not prove to be the one many had hoped would overthrow the Roman oppression. He had something far more cosmic in mind. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to wage war against sin and the forces of darkness. And he knows the victory is his. But the final battle will be costly. I think we should recognize here that this is one area that we often seem to ignore or miss about who Jesus is. Jesus is meek and mild. Which unfortunately many translate to mean soft on sin. This is not true, though. It is certainly true that he revealed himself, he revealed in himself a tenderness to sinners. But it is also very true that he confronts sinners in their sin because in Jesus Christ, God's judgment on sin is clearly seen. Jesus' time, starting here in Mark 11, is about confronting those forces which oppose God's kingdom. Do not be mistaken, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is meant to provoke. It forces a reaction. Notice what happens when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. What was his destination that day? It was a temple. We begin to see clearly the point of conflict for the days ahead because Jesus comes not as a reformer of the temple, but rather as its fulfillment and replacement. He is the one who provides atonement for sin. Righteousness is not found in religious ritual, but in him. God's presence is not found in a building, but in a person. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm getting at. I'm not saying that Jesus provokes us to sin. What I'm saying is that Jesus confronts us in our sin and we are forced to make a decision. Will we bow before him and honor him as king? Will we submit ourselves to him? Will we choose to die to ourselves and our own agendas? Will we 
submit to his kingship? Or will we dig in our heels? Will we refuse to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior? Or will we demand our own way, our own will? Will we seek to destroy him and his claim over us? I don't think that there are any other options. This mentality that Jesus just sort of turns a blind eye to sin and lets us be who we are is simply not the Jesus revealed in Scripture. Dearly beloved, he's come to deliver us from our sin. He's come to rescue us from the dominion of darkness. He's come to transform us to be citizens of his kingdom. He isn't heading to the cross here in Mark 11 in order that we might continue to live in darkness, in sin, in death. No, sin is being confronted. It's being shown to be what it is, that which opposes God and seeks to put him to death. Because we want to reign as our own kings and queens. So what does Jesus' kingship mean for us? It means that we are confronted in our sin, in our pride, in our illusion that we are our own gods. This means that we can't claim Jesus as our king but continue to live with the values of an opposing kingdom. We can't claim Jesus as our king, but to live with values of an opposing kingdom. Jesus' kingdom turns the kingdom of the world on its head. Jesus' Jesus's kingdom is one of losing your life to gain it. One in which the first will be last and the last will be first. One in which the humble will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. It is one in which suffering brings forth exaltation. Along similar lives, lines, living as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom means living with intentionality. Living with intentionality. We can see from the very beginning of this passage the intention with which Jesus enters Jerusalem. With which he submits himself to the will of his heavenly father. With which he runs the race that is set before him. There is planning. Whether Jesus has arranged to use this donkey with its owner or whether this reveals Jesus' foreknowledge and sovereignty over subsequent events, we see nonetheless there is intentionality. We've been seeing in Mark's gospel that Jesus knows what he's getting himself into when he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Every move is strategic. It's all leading to a specific destination, the cross. And so it isn't as though he accidentally finds himself there at the end of the week. He's not an unknowing victim. He doesn't mess up and wind up in a heap of trouble unexpectedly. It is carefully calculated and planned all for your salvation and mine. And while we aren't called to die a salvific death as Jesus was, we are called to follow Jesus in picking up our cross. Jesus sets a pattern for us. He sets a pattern for us in his humility and meekness. He sets a pattern for us in his service to others. He sets a pattern for us in death and resurrection. And here's what it means for us. Dearly beloved, you don't accidentally find yourself being a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
You don't accidentally find yourself carrying a cross. You don't mistakenly find yourself putting to death sin in your life. You don't unintentionally find yourself serving others. You are either intentional about how you follow Jesus and discipleship touches every aspect of our lives or you aren't really following Jesus. What often gets said about this passage is that people are really fickle. That this crowd goes from welcoming Jesus in Jerusalem and hailing him as king to calling for his crusader in the, re- the week. The reality is, though, this crowd who welcomes him and hails him as king is probably his people. It's a crowd that's been following him. It's a crowd that's just witnessed or has heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead in Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. By the way, he's going back there to sleep that night with Lazarus and his family. This probably isn't the same crowd that's calling for his crucifixion later that week, but this crowd that is here at his entry into Jerusalem apparently has abandoned him later in the week. What happened? What happened? Well, all of a sudden, following this king took an unexpected turn and everyone jumped ship, even his closest friends. There is a clear lesson here that it isn't enough. It isn't enough to give Jesus lip service. It isn't enough to simply say he is king. Are you actually living like he is your king? Are you living as a citizen of his kingdom in the values of his kingdom? You see, Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He isn't looking for people who will say good things about him. Talk is cheap. Jesus calls followers who will count the cost and make a decision that losing this world is worth it if it means gaining Jesus and his kingdom. You can come and sing praise to him every Sunday, but if you never bow your knee or your heart before him the rest of the week, he isn't your king. So is he king over your life? Is he king over how you spend your time? Is he king over how you spend your money? Is he king over your relationships? Over your families? Over your friendships? Is he king over your professional life? Is he king over it all? Or is he king only when it's convenient for you, for me? Again, submitting to him as the Lord doesn't happen by accident. With the same intention as he enters into Jerusalem and resolutely and joyfully endures the cross that's been set before him, we are called to follow him who is the pioneer and finisher of our faith. And I get it. This is a really hard word for us because following Jesus requires loss. It requires giving up our lives. It requires suffering. It was a hard word for the rich young man who Mark tells us in the previous chapter away from Jesus disheartened and sorrowful but clinging tightly to the things of this world. And can we be honest? Those of us who have much find it much more difficult to leave behind the things of this world 
the more we have, the more entranced we become with the things of this world. It's a hard word until we realize that nothing, that nothing in this world even comes close to comparing with what we gain as citizens of Christ's kingdom. It's all rubbish compared to the glory of the kingdom of God. So as we begin our Lenten journey, I want to encourage you to make this a season of fixing your eyes on Jesus. Spend time meditating on his sacrifice for you. Spend time meditating on the treasures we have in Jesus Christ. Spend time meditating on the pattern he has set for us. And I pray that these meditations would lead each of us to recognize the areas of our lives that have not been brought into conformity with him. That we would be able to see clearly the areas in our lives where he is confronting us in our sinfulness because we have not bowed to his kingship. And I pray that we would bring them to the foot of the cross to be nailed there. That we would repent. That those areas, that in those areas we would stop loving our sin. And that we would start loving God. And that we would with joy pick up our crosses and follow him who is the giver of life and who came that we might know his joy in peace for eternity. And that when, Lord willing, we find ourselves here together on Easter morning, that we would truly rejoice, that we would rejoice and give thanks over God's salvific work in Jesus Christ and how it has transformed our lives by his grace. And may God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit receive all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise that Jesus Christ, your own Son, went with joy to the cross for us and our salvation. That he came not to be served, but to serve. Father, give us the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Give us courage to follow him even into suffering, knowing that suffering produces glory. Father, give us courage to leave behind the things of this world, knowing that nothing compares with the glory of your kingdom. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe about him using the Philippian Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? We believe in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a fee grasp, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Amen.